When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we're going to start with some of the best opening lines for a poem. It's from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Kubla Khan. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. And while Coleridge may have been high on opium while he wrote this, Xanadu was a real place. It was the summer castle of Kublai Khan, which Marco Polo visited. But it was also a fictional pleasure palace that you might know as Charles Foster Kane's house in Citizen Kane. And while Orson Welles's version of Xanadu was compiled from exterior shots of a castle in New York and surrealist matte paintings, it was meant to be William Randolph Hearst's La Cuesta Encantada. Or the Enchanted Hill, which is high above California's Pacific coast. And Hearst lovingly called it the ranch. It's sometimes called San Simeon, which is also the town where it's located. But we know it best as Hearst Castle. So where did this castle come from? Well, William Randolph Hearst's father, George Hearst, purchased Rancho Piedras Blancas in 1865. It had been part of a Mexican land grant of 1840, and he later bought the adjoining ranchos, Santa Rosa and San Simeon. So when William was in kind of his 
his middle age. He inherited this enormous estate by this point from his mother. It's 250,000 acres. And um, by 1919, he starts construction, which is the same year that he's kind of making his first forays into the movie business, trying to promote the career of his 22-year-old mistress, Marion Davies. So this is his entry to Hollywood. And the land was originally known as Camp Hill. It had been a place for the family to go on camping trips. You know, Mrs. Hurst and the boys, although it's not my kind of a camping trip, it's it's a little cushier. They've got separate sleeping and dining tents, which actually is my idea of camping. That sounds lovely. (laughs) Sounds pretty comfortable. But Hurst wants more than that. Yeah. He sends instructions to his architect, Julia Morgan, in 1919. Miss Morgan, we are tired of camping out in the open at the ranch in San Simeon, and I would like to build a little something. That's a major understatement, but she spends the next 28 years working on the project, which by 1947 is a complex of 165 rooms and 127 acres of gardens, terraces, pools, and walkways. So... Before we get into the house, we should talk about the woman who spent 28 years of her life working on this project. Right. And Julia Morgan is a pretty interesting person. She was born in 1872 in San Francisco, a little small, sickly child, but she sneaked into her brother's gym and exercised. And she was very well educated by her well-to-do parents. As a teen, she spent the summer with her New York relatives. And that's when she first discovered her love of architecture, when she visited the office of Pierre Lebrun, who was her cousin's husband. She likes the drawings, she likes the designs, and she thinks, hey, maybe that could be me. For me. Yeah, so she attends UC Berkeley and studies civil engineering. And her senior year, she meets Bernard Maybach, um, who by the way, is an interesting character himself. He wore Greek robes and had a waist-long beard. But um, after graduation, she studies architecture with him privately. And by 1896, she goes to Paris and starts preparing for exams to enter the École de Beaux-Arts. Um, she has to take the test a few times. Um, most, so does everybody. Most people do. But she ends up being the first woman enrolled in their architecture section and graduates in 1902. And she took a lot of trips in Europe while she was there to study classical architecture, and she wanted to sketch a lot of these gorgeous buildings because she couldn't always afford the books she needed. Yeah, so she really learns a lot about classical architecture. And she returns to California and becomes the first woman, again, uh, to be granted an architect's license in the state. Go, Julia. Yeah, and um, her she eventually establishes her own practice, and it really takes off after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. For one thing, you can imagine there are a lot of buildings that need to be rebuilt, but also some of her earlier designs had weathered pretty well. She had been using reinforced concrete, so it wasn't all um, crumbled from the earthquake. Right, and her connection to the Hearst starts with Phoebe Hearst, who's really involved in the YWCA. And this, is, this is William Randolph Hearst's mother. Right. And it's not like she was just working on the Hearst Castle during this 28 years. We want to make that clear because she's also working with other clients and on other projects for the Hearsts, like the Hacienda in California, 
Wintune Fairy Tale House in Northern California. So neat looking. You it's really so look pretty. Google image that one. There's a Hopi residence at the Grand Canyon. Um, she does the Los Angeles Examiner building. Several of William Randolph Hearst's Beverly Hills residences and Marion Davies's Beach House in Santa Monica. But yeah, like like we said, she's also got other clients. So when Hearst eventually loses a lot of his money later in life, it's not like she's out of work. She's got a a successful business. Right. Aside from she was a smart cookie. But we, we wanted, we're here to talk about her most famous project, which is the Hearst Castle. So Hearst was really into collecting art and antiquities. And it's something that had appealed to him ever since he visited Europe with his mother at age 10. He'd been interested in art history. So whatever he built, it wasn't just going to be a little something like he <laughs> sent in that telegram to Morgan. It was going to be a museum for his art and statuary, tapestries and pottery, and also a place to display these architectural elements that he had accumulated. And this is big stuff. It's not it's not little pictures to hang on the wall. It's no, we're talking entire ceilings. Ceilings and doors and even temples. So he's got to have a place to integrate all of the things he's collected. And Sarah had found a really cool New York Times article that called his home cinematic because it's not arranged as a whole. There's not one huge idea that all of the rooms sort of play into. It's yeah. more like you walk into one room and it's gothic and you walk into the next room and it's very renaissance. So yeah. more like a series of vignettes. And it's um, that makes sense when you consider he's building it to house his collections and to display them. So he's got all this different stuff. It's going to end up looking very um, diverse. But let's talk about the biggest part of the house, which is uh, the main house, La Casa Grande, 60,000 square feet, and it's built in a Mediterranean revival style. Yeah, as are the three guest homes, which are called cottages, and that must be very ironic because they're each mansions in their own right. But the Casa Grande has 38 bedrooms and 41 bathrooms, and it's Probably most distinctive feature is the Spanish towers, like a Spanish cathedral. It's you can see it up on the on the hillside when you drive by. Drive and there by. are even rooms in the towers, the hexagonal celestial suites, as they're known. One was a favorite of Clark Gable and Carol Lombard, and they could wake up to these eighteen huge bells above them, which I think might be kind of terrifying <laughs> or sure. wonderful. Not, or I don't know. Um, a, a lot of the rooms have the antique covered ceilings, like we were talking about, Oriental carpets and the colorful tapestry hangings on wood-paneled walls, and um, a lot of the decorative elements originated from Spain or Italy, which played into that Mediterranean revival theme. Hearst was trying to, I don't think he was a big fan of the Spanish mission style, um, but he wanted to stay true to the California look and not, you know, not go completely off course. Um, But every week, Railroad cars would come in with different things. It wasn't all just from Spain or Italy. He would have um, Fr- Flemish tapestries and antique French furniture, as well as the Roman temple fragments and the ceilings from Italian monasteries. Um, so all of the you can just imagine trucks coming up the hill with just overflowing luxuries. <laughs> but despite this ornate setting in this ornate building that he had, he maintained a surprisingly casual atmosphere. He really liked this idea of it being a ranch. So 
you know, the refectory table, which is in this lovely, gorgeous room that looks like it should be in a monastery, yeah. is set with paper napkins and bottled ketchup. Yeah, like it's a campsite. <laughs> and he has this really impressive collection of ancient Greek pottery. Some of it is from 800 BC. And it's arranged among his books, like you or I would put little knickknacks, like postcards or something <laughs> on our bookshelves. It's not, it's not set up like a museum. No, but it is this gorgeous setting, and it's perfect for entertaining. And Hearst entertained a lot of people, including some of the shining star names, Lionel and John Barrymore, Charlie Chaplin, Gary Cooper, Clark Gable, Greta Garbo, Cary Grant, and Harpo Marx. And probably his most famous guest was Winston Churchill. And um, by the time Churchill was visiting, Hearst and his wife, Millicent, were estranged. Uh, she was tired of him carrying on this very open affair with Marion Davies and had moved to New York. But she she made sure to come home when, when Churchill was visiting and entertained as, as the lady of the house. Oh, I would too. Get those perks. <laughs> but usually it was Davies who was entertaining with Hearst, and they had very elaborate costume parties, including one of the big ones was called the Circus Party, and that was for William Randolph Hearst's 75th birthday, and Betty Davis came as a bearded lady. Which sounds pretty... Like a pretty devoted costume. We do love costumes. We can appreciate that. Um, he also has a huge wine cellar. You would think that that a lot of these parties would be very alcohol-fueled, but surprisingly they weren't. He was not a big drinker himself, and even though he does have this impressive wine cellar, which Morgan designed so it's in compartments, so it's fireproof and theft-proof, and he's he's really concerned about theft, by the way, with his with his wine cellar. He holds the key. Even his butler complains that you have to really order ahead of time because you have to get the master of the house to <laughs> to get the wine out for you. But there were ways to get around it. If you were uh, David Niven, the English actor who you might know from The Pink Panther, he got in trouble once for bringing in his own liquor and tossing his empties under his bed, which, of course, was the bed formerly owned by Cardinal Richelieu. <laughs> but there was a lot to do at the castle besides... Drink. Hearst would actually kick people out sometimes if they were too inebriated. But we're going to go over some of the most famous features. Probably the castle's most famous feature of all is the Neptune Pool. There are actually three pools that were built on site, each successively larger than the last, because the initial plan was just a little ornamental pool. But in 1924, Hearst wrote to Julia Morgan and said, I am sending back the plan of the Temple Garden with the suggestion that we make the pool longer than it is, as long as a swimming pool. Mrs. Hearst and the children are extremely anxious to have a swimming pool. So the second version sounds pretty awesome. It has a cascade and statues of uh, Neptune and a Nereid. Um, but the present version, which was built in 1934 to 36, is uh, pretty amazing. It's 104 feet long, 58 feet wide, and it holds 345,000 gallons of water. And that's not the only cool thing about it. There's also this oil-burning heating system, which Sarah and I liked because it sounds, at the same time, both so modern and so old-fashioned. Yeah, it sounds very quaint, oil-burning, but um, nice to have a heated pool, too, I guess. Exactly. And picture lots of Vermont marble and four 17th-century Italian bas-reliefs on the sides of the colonnades. Yeah, and of course, there's a whole temple facade on one side of the pool. And if you don't want to look at that, if you get tired of staring at the gorgeous temple, you can 
turn around in the pool and look at a beautiful view of the Pacific. Or if you're more of an indoor swimmer. Yeah, if, the, if the sun is not shining in California. You could change locations and go to the indoor Roman pool, which is also huge, 1,665 square feet. And there are eight statues of Roman gods, goddesses, and heroes there. Like lifeguards watching over you. <laughs> but not entirely as helpful. <laughs> it was probably styled after ancient Roman baths, like the Baths of Caracalla. Um, and the mosaics were inspired by a 5th century mausoleum in Ravenna. And this is our very, very favorite part of all. It has a traditional marine monster theme, and I'm thinking about changing my bathroom. I would love to have a marine monster theme in my bathroom. Sounds great. It's decorated floor to ceiling with mosaic tiles. Some of them are colored, some of them have fused gold inside, and the designs are created by a well-known muralist, Camille Salon. But if swimming is not what you're up to, there's also a zoo. And the zoo at various points had antelope, zebras, camels, llamas, kangaroos, ostriches, emus, Barbary sheep, Alaskan bighorn sheep. Katie, you want to pick it up? Yeah, there are more. We're not done. (laughs) Musk oxen, yaks, giraffes, black bears, grizzly bears. Which bears best, Sarah? Lions, tigers, leopards, jaguars, cougars, chimpanzees, orangutans, monkeys, macaws, kinkajous, swans, storks, and an elephant. Just to round out the cast. So Hearst kept a vet on staff, as you would have to if you had all these animals. Most of them, um, or at least the grazing type, just kind of went around in enclosures, but there were, you know, he, he didn't let the bears roam their property and, like, eat Charlie Chaplin or something. But by 1937, he started losing a lot of money and dismantled his zoo. He, I think he sold most of them to, zoo, like, public zoos or private collections. But there's still a few animals left, including zebras. Hearst Castle is famous for um, the occasional zebra that strolls by. (laughs) And if you don't feel like driving to go see those zebras, you could land at the airport, Mm -hmm. which some very famous people like Sir Charles Kingford Smith, Howard Hughes, Amelia Earhart, and Charles Lindbergh flew in to visit. So Hearst died in 1951, just shortly after this project is officially completed. In 1958, his heirs gave 137 acres of the holdings, including the castle, to the state of California as the Hearst San Simeon Historical Monument. And today you can go and tour the castle. I I actually really recommend visiting um, the castle's official site, and you can do 360-degree tours. Oh, and and click through all the rooms. It's really cool. It gives you a good sense of how you install a ceiling from an Italian monastery into your own home. I had so many questions for Sarah about that. Like, no, really, once you buy a ceiling, where do you put it? (laughs) I'd like someone to answer that for me. But um, it it makes sense that they transferred this to the state, just as Xanadu and Citizen Kane shows signs of decay by by the end of the story. You can imagine it would cost a fortune to maintain a home like this privately. Exactly. So that is the story of Hearst Castle, and this was a listener suggestion for which we thank you. If you have ideas, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to read more about some fabulously wealthy residences, go to our homepage and search for top 10 most expensive houses at www.howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. 